Hi, I'm Robert. And I'm Keegan. And you're listening to Brave New Space. And today we have Colonel Peter Gerritsen to discuss the war in space. This episode is going to be focusing primarily on Space Force, why it's been created, and the role that Colonel Gerritsen and others expect it to play in the future of the U.S. military. Colonel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So I think we can all comfortably say that we are in the middle of probably the most significant expansion in the capabilities of the space industry that we've seen since the days of Apollo. It's getting far cheaper to get to space. There's more hardware flying around than ever before, and more than we can even begin to dream right now is already being planned for just in the next 10 years. And on this show, we've talked about the challenges that poses to the space industry, the challenges that poses from a security perspective, and indeed, the burden that is going to be put on regulatory agencies. But one thing we really want to get involved with today is to talk about the opportunities that this really brings and how the military will play a role in the future of space as these new systems continue to come online. So from your perspective right now, what are kind of the biggest trends you can see in space defense? All right. Well, the biggest trends in space defense specific to the defense is that for decades since the close of the Cold War, the United States was basically able to operate uncontested as if space was a sanctuary where it was really the only meaningful actor in the defense space. And that changed basically with the Chinese ASAT tests. Now, there had been ASAT tests before by the United States and the Soviet Union, but nothing had happened in that space for a very long time. And China's decision to do that was sort of a break with that trend in tradition. And since then, they have been very aggressive and been joined by other powers in contesting the United States' ability to use space. And so that general trend of contestation is one thing that's happening in the defense space. The second trend is, of course, the more recent United States response of trying to get its act together with a dedicated space force. And then the next thing is that the center of innovation from which defense technology draws has shifted, where at one point in time, the U.S. government was a primary investor and technology leader on space technology. Now the banner of that leadership has really passed to industry and to a global industry at that. And then I would say the last thing is that the mix of what's important for space defense to address is undergoing change. So space from its very inception had to consider advancing foreign policy goals that included economics and prestige and military power, which really at at the time that space power matured, was almost exclusively having to do with the balance of nuclear threats. But more recently, the drives for nations in space is much less about prestige or has anything to do really with, uh, with nuclear deterrence and is much more about economic development and exploitation. So within that, there is this question of how important are space resources going to be And the open question of what will be the role of militaries with respect to this broad, multi-trillion dollar expected space economy. Is the United States still number one in space and space defense? And is sort of the global primacy still a strategic imperative for the United States to follow? 
Well, in answer to your second question, absolutely, if the United States desires to maintain the enviable position of being the global leader, it absolutely must address its position of primacy in space. And a, a failure to address with a concerted strategy the ability to keep primacy in space you know, will result in the United States taking a second or third tier position on planet Earth. The destiny of the entire international system, in my view, is going to be written in space, in the heavens. But the first part of your question is partially meaningless. So, you know, what I would say is that, yes, the United States, on every measure that would likely matter, is still in the number one position. But this is kind of like watching two horses on a race and seeing that one is ahead at a nice slow trot, and then there's another one rapidly galloping up on it from behind. And the galloper coming up behind is China that has a very aggressive space that really has that eye of the tiger, that has a very clear plan to be the premier space power by 2045, and whose articulated ambitions you know, are just vastly more ambitious than anything the United States has currently put forward. So we're seeing this greater democratization of space technology, the rise of new players, and one term that is thrown around in all of this as being kind of a key to U.S. strategy going forward in space has been this idea of strategic depth in space. Colonel, would you be willing to go into some detail about what that really means? What is strategic depth in context of space? The concept of strategic depth generally, you know, is that you have the ability to sort of trade distance and that it's not easy for an adversary to kind of have a, a fait accompli that they would have to expend time and effort going deeper in a particular way to achieve their ends. So, you know, applied to space, there are a number of different ways you could look at it. One way to look at it is that, you know, right now, all powers have the ability to threaten the majority of space systems that the space from Earth up to geostationary orbit really is much more like coastal waters around a country. You can imagine, you know, by analogy, you know, you could imagine that you had warships that were coming up and down the coast, but those warships are in, in many ways always going to be inferior to the size of the guns that you can put on, on shore. And in, in the same way, right, any satellite in low Earth orbit is vulnerable from the ground. And most satellites in low Earth orbit pass over, you know, almost every part, you know, of the ground. And, and so, you know, they can be jammed or lased or shot at. So, you know, this literal space, this coastal space is in many ways really dominated by the Earth. And the ability to sort of attack space or attack critical space infrastructure on the ground means that you sort of lack meaningful strategic depth. There's no off-Earth independence. There's no ability to station things, you know, meaningfully large things high and maneuver them down or to, or to work your way back down. And then the depth of anything you put in space industrially is also completely limited to your industries on Earth. There isn't any off-Earth or Earth-independent supply chain that enables that kind of depth. And then there's allied with that idea is there's sort of a lack of logistical depth. So this would be kind of, you know, an analogy would be, think about what it was like for the United States Navy to attempt to project power at any length when it 
did not have Pearl Harbor in the Pacific or any of the coaling stations that allowed it to go farther. So right now, maneuver in space by any power is extremely limited because nobody has access to in-space propellant or in-space refueling or any kind of logistics chain by which you can upgrade or maneuver or, or change. So any satellite maneuver today comes with a lot of hand-wringing about reducing its long-term mission value because that fuel is expended and gone. And anything that we launch to space today doesn't have the ability to be upgraded. And so that slows down a tremendous amount of potential innovation that could be happening. To your reference about the U.S. building coaling stations in the uh, end of the 19th century, I guess we just now need someone to be the modern Alfred Thayer Mahan and draft uh, on space power. So curiously enough, that's already been done. The classic work on space power that illuminates a Mahanian space theory is by uh, Dr. Brent Zarnick, who is uh, associated with the Space Horizons Task Force and the Schriever Scholars, which is the premier strategy program for the Space Force. So Colonel, just to look at a different perspective for somebody who might be a naysayer, can this strategic initiative of having a Space Force survive presidential presidents change every four to eight years, Congress changes every two years? Can it survive, you know, because it, they could think that this, this is just a kind of a, a trend and that maybe we don't really need Space Force and it's essentially, you know, defunded by uh, future leadership. Well, I mean, I worry about that. I worry about us losing the desire to be the leader, right? I mean, it, it, if we if we try to become cheap about what we do, if we if we decide that ambi certain ambitions are too big for us, and if we dismiss the ambitions of others as propaganda or pie in the sky, we could easily go the way of the previous global hegemon, you know, the United Kingdom, and just sort of fade and see our industrial base erode over time because of a, a lack of ambition, a lack of will to power on the global stage, and a, and a failure to invest in these long-term, exponentially increasing technologies. And of course, if you don't invest right in your mutual fund, it doesn't grow exponentially. It's, it's a necessary ingredient that you invest for things to compound. On the other hand, I would say that I am optimistic about Space Force on a number of scores. And the first is that I think that overall, we are seeing, and I think we will continue to to see increasingly impressive commercial feats that will sustain and validate the importance of, of doing this. And I think that China will give us a lot of help because they are very good at meeting their deadlines. And you know, their deadlines going forward, you know, stretch all the way to 2050, and they are just a series of amazing Sputnik moments, right? The day that they put up a megawatt of solar power, the day they put up their first nuclear space shuttle, the day they're at 100 megawatts, the day they're at a gigawatt of power when they start industrializing the moon to build solar power satellites, all of those actions that are effective in building national power and are in and of themselves not not warlike and yet take up strategic space and you know give them a position of strategic advantage, you know, those will continue to excite people who care about 
the future of American power. So, and I'm very, very optimistic about the follow-on generations. You know, I, I had an opportunity to talk to one of the first lieutenants going into the Space Force, and they're so excited, and they clearly got their heads screwed on right, and, you know, reviewing just brilliant papers by people who headed, you know, right now very few people are actually in the Space Force. Most people are in the Air Force and some of those are headed and designated for Space Force. And just seeing what is coming out of the majors and how big their thinking is as they move up the ranks, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. And then the last thing is as disorganized a lobby as I think the entrepreneurial sector is in fixing the mission of the Space Force, you see some of the right things coming out of industry leadership as they slowly perceive what this could mean for them. So Elon tweeted some very good things about it. And then, you know, I was recently at a state of the industrial base event put on by New Space New Mexico, where there were a lot of folks from industry. And what their understanding really struck me as very constant with what we're talking about here. So I think the good ideas are going to triumph, but we are, we are in a race and we're in a, not a race to get to any particular place. More like not an arms race, but more like that logic of an arms race of you do something that is important and I need to meet or exceed that. And then that continues in a spiral, right? So that agreement that we are going to measure each other by each other, I, I think is going to be an important logic, you know, going forward. And, and overall for humanity, I think that's a good thing because competition between the United States and China will accelerate the movement of human life and earth life uh, off the planet and probably will increase our our long-term chances of our species survival. But we have to be, I think, I'm very disturbed when I hear people think the United States has got this game won, you know, that we are just so far ahead or that, or try to dismiss and say, you know, the Chinese just copy, they can't innovate, they're a paper tiger. In my view, they just have not looked at China closely enough to really recognize what a credible competitor they really are and that they've really just started their efforts. This is an important thing to remember is that this will most likely not be something confined to a single leader or a you know single lifetime. I mean, the development of a modern U.S. Navy took a generation or two before it was anything resembling a formidable force. And we'll probably see something similar in the development of space. You think that's a fairly reasonable assumption? I do. I mean, I think that in many ways, I'm sympathetic to the, the host of daily problems that the Space Force has to deal with just to cope with their existing missions. And I do recognize that most of the things that interest me are things that are tiny wedges of investment that will slowly build over time, and they are not as compelling as other things may seem to be. But the analogy I try to make is that when it comes to areas that are compounding and accumulative, of which your kid's college fund or your own individual retirement account are examples, right? A one-year delay of investment can be hundreds of thousands or you know millions of dollars at the out year. And if you're doing competitive investment with somebody else, that makes it unbelievably urgent to start now. So even though the amount of resources that, for instance, the Space Force would have to put into this broader, you know, cislunar economy today is small, 
it still needs to be putting in the resources in terms of the thinking, the strategy, the doctrine, growing the you know earth-based industrial base and the public-private partnerships that enable it. Very slowly over time, that'll get elaborated, you know, both between our space force and other, you know, space forces or navies. You know, we will figure out how to interact. Generally speaking, navies interact very well on the seas. So I expect that because space has some very naval-like characteristics that it will, that by and large, navies will get along, you know, fairly well in space and find, you know, room for cooperation because commerce is the dominant factor. Is space, you know, a domain where we might see, you know, military conflict? Of course, it's a human domain, you know, in every other place that that human beings go or conduct activities, you know, there is always some possibility of conflict. But I think it's been a real mistake for us to sort of build space as a, to make that the banner that space is a warfighting domain. It's a strategic domain. And, and militaries have very important roles there, but militaries do a lot more than fight wars and kill people and break things. And there's no need, you don't hear the Navy having to assert that the sea is a warfighting domain. You know, what, what they say is that they enable global commerce and the vast prosperity. And, you know, when called upon, you know, they certainly have capabilities that are threatening to transgressors, but the centrality of what they do is the support of global trade. So deterrence. So deterrence could be a part of uh, maybe the United States's presence in space to enable open development and commerce of the space frontier. Would you agree? I don't know if that's necessarily the right term we should be using here. I mean, if, if, because deterrence, you could argue, was the basis for the United States' entrance into to the space race in the first place. I mean, what was the nuclear arms race other than just another subset of the space race? And that was ultimately based around deterrence. Colonel, what are your thoughts on this? Certainly, I have a lot of thoughts on deterrence and the importance of deterrence. And I would say that, you know, you have to talk about deterrence of what from what. So there is deterrence of war. There's deterrence, you know, of somebody attacking your satellites. There's deterrence of a general war. There's deterrence of people, you know, preying on your commerce. So uh, the U.S. Navy doesn't babysit, you know, every ship on the high seas. It couldn't possibly. And in fact, it has no capability to stop some other nation from shooting an anti-ship missile and, and sinking an American ship that's beyond the capabilities of a, of a Navy to do. But everybody knows that if they were to make such a mistake, the U.S. Navy has amazing capabilities to can of whoop ass on them, right? So the key point with regard to deterrence, I think, you know, gets into the ability to punish and retaliate against bad actors. And certainly the Space Force has to have that kind of capability. But respond to the other point, no, I don't think that deterrence is the best place to start for a discussion on Space Force because there are really important frontier development roles and protection roles that are, yes, in one sense, you could always link, link them back to deterrence, right? Why don't people you know, attack you? Because they know that you could retaliate. But in many ways, it's much more subtle than that, right? It's just presence and stabilizing presence, you know, and as long as, you know, there's a sheriff in town, it just suppresses even the need to think about self-help or even the temptation to act in an aggressive manner. And it's not necessarily specific, right? I, 
it's not that having a patrol of a some future space force asset you know might be deliberately designed to threaten or scare a particular actor it's just that by being there by expanding and showing the flag that conditions the entire system to be disciplined and prosperous we're kind of getting back into this sort of Mahanian theory of U.S. naval policy that dates all the way back to, into at least the Teddy Roosevelt administration and really the McKinley administration. This idea that the most effective use of the U.S. Navy has not been really as a deterring agent, uh, not even as a warfighting agent, but as its most effective means of threat and being able to impose impo- any type of uh, foreign policy change has just been its presence Rather than getting into a history lesson on the Great White Fleet or anything like this, we can just go back to, to something a little bit more recent. The Chinese island building campaign in the Spratly Islands. Uh, one of the th- main reasons for this that has been purported has been China is essentially trying to get out of a shield that has already been enclosed around them through a series of alliance systems and really control of trade lanes by the U.S. Navy. In essence, the U.S. Navy's most effective tool is its ability to blockade and stop other countries from engaging in international economic activity. So my question is, is that the type of role we can expect to see from the Space Force? Not the only role, grant you, but the one that will make them a defining force going forward to be something that is able to either secure or forestall economic activity from rifle powers? Yes, I do think you're right that that's going to be that will eventually grow to be a a central activity in principle of what it does. To the earlier point, I think that presence is absolutely going to be the most important good that the Space Force actually supplies, that probably space warfare will be extremely rare for a, a number of reasons that's undesirable to many. But just because it's likely to be rare doesn't mean that it should fall into the category of unthinkable. You know, I, I think that the Chinese have done, you know, a fantastic, you know, mental judo throw on us where we are so afraid of the possibility of a space war, you know, that we are not adequately projecting our willingness to contest and not knuckle under. And I think that can lead to a failure of deterrence. I think you have to show, you know, your resolve and willingness for deterrence to actually hold. And, you know, hand-wringing too much about how bad a space war would be, hoping to convince your opponent not to do it is really just telling them what you're scared of. But, you know, you actually hinted at a very interesting distinction that I'm actually looking for a word for. So when you discuss the Chinese island building and occupying campaign, this has the effect of deterring at its end point, right? Once those islands are built, they raise the cost of any intervention by the United States. But to call that activity deterrence seems to me to be missing something very fundamental in the activity of deliberately going out on a strategic offensive, capturing key terrain in peacetime, and thereby excluding that zone to others, right? I think creating a buffer zone, you know, trying to essentially invent a buffer zone uh, seems to be the more accurate description we seem to be looking for here. Well, but I think there's a more general activity, right? And you can see this shaping up in what they're doing, you know, in L2 on the lunar far side. It's very much part 
the analogy of Go, I think, is really good, right? That you are you are creating strategic space. You know, you, you are crowding out others. You're elbowing out others, and it's a very sort of spatial geographic way of a, of approaching. That's what we're talking about is containment. <laughs> well, you could say that they're trying to contain us, but it is taking the flag. It's taking the key positions, right? It's locking up the, you know, as Mahan would say, right? You can you can achieve strategic positions in peacetime that you could never get in war. One of the functions that I think, you know, the Space Force can do is to just get to key places, secure our access to those key places and ensure that others cannot push us out, right? And this this same sort of thing played out in the Louisiana Territory in the Northwest, which was contested by other European powers, or, you know, Hawaii, which was contested, or the Caribbean. There's this push and pull and great power competition of a- attempting to push out the zones of influence of others. And in many ways, I think this is sort of an underlying dynamic that you will see. Now, the United States, even on the sea, we favor an open trading system. So as long as our competitors don't attempt to exclude us or create a an exclusive economic empire, we, for the most part, don't care. You know, we will let their navies will move, we'll let their shipping move. We're not interested in the kind of dominance that, that excludes others. But sort of the the moment that you shut down trade, particularly our trade, the United States shows a very different face. Thank you for joining us today on Brave New Space. And thanks once again for Colonel Peter Garretson for joining us. On the next episode of Brave New Space, we're welcoming back Megan Crawford, who will be joining us to discuss how women are defining the new space industry. Hi, listener. My new book, Space is Open for Business, is coming out soon. And I want you to get a sneak preview of it. Head on over to my website, robertjacobson.com, for a first look.